This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? It's 9.35, it's Friday, it's the 1st of March and you're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C. And oh my goodness, who just turned up? Shazana and I'm Wong Shaoni. Too excited, too excited. (laughs) It's Friday, Friday. What's not to be excited Mm. about? Especially at this hour because it's WTF or What's Our Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed so that you, Philip, can go and visit your friends and family and appear to be... Very in the know. Shouting, I don't need to appear, I am. Okay, I like that confidence. Well, he may not need the help, but I do. So, you know, no, get, you me, don't need get it. me up to date. You are one person that doesn't need it. Some people here have imposter syndrome, others don't. Ouch. Wow. Okay, but anyway, let's talk about people who have been very kind, right? Who, like me. Okay, yeah, okay. But back to the imposter syndrome. But never mind. There is this very charming story over the week where a New York medical school is going to offer students free tuition following a one billion US dollar donation from a ninety three year old widow of a major Wall Street investor. And this gift gift goes to Albert Einstein College of Medicine. From Dr. Ruth Gottesman, she was a former professor at this school, is one of the largest donations ever made. And what is so special is because this school is in the Bronx, which is one of New York City's poorest boroughs and is ranked as the unhealthiest of New York State's 62 counties. It's a really heartwarming story. I'm sure you saw the videos when they, when she made the announcement and all the, the graduates kind of erupted in tears of joy and laughter, right? I think. So that, I think, is very heartwarming. I, I think this is very interesting because if you look at her, her husband is the late David Goddesman, known as Sandy, who was the protege of Warren Buffett. But I'm also not sure whether, I mean, this is, of course, very nice and heartwarming. Will this be an exception rather than the case going forward? Right. I, I mean, there's so many ways that we can look at the story, right? And and whether we see similar uh, donations or, or uh, endowments that are being made with that similar kind of uh, thinking behind it. So what I really uh, was struck by this story was I read the the coverage that the New York Times gave and it went into the whole detail of how um, the donor, Ruth Gottsman, is herself a former professor mm. at Einstein. So mm. she knows the institution very well, right? And the reason why she was, um, I guess, incentivized or, or decided to donate to them was because of a conversation that she had on a plane with one of the uh, principals of the college and and it also speaks to personal relations that you make along the way and the fact that it will make a substantial difference to students there i feel like it's one of those uh, impactful uh, projects that uh, should become more the norm but will it is the question that uh, you rightly asked mm. okay so some context tuition at this school is nearly 59000 us dollars many students actually leave with substantial debt about 50% of the students are actually from New York State themselves and 60% of them are for women. So she probably looked around her classes, right, and thought, how many of these kids are going to leave this university struggling 
all right, firstly with wanting, they want the best for themselves. They, that's why they're going to medical school. But then leaving with student debt, which in US has become a major mm. problem. So this is the point about philanthropy and about how you, in any capacity, whether you're a billionaire or even just only have 100 ringgit in your account, what do you give and how do you give, right? I think with her, she's the role model to say, look, two things. She's very personally involved and passionate about the cause because she being a former professor there, so she was very invested in the mm. cause. She saw this as a problem because we know about student debt, especially for medical students, right, rising. So she thought, well, this is a great combination of these two. And so while we talk about the number being very big, Big, I think it's just heartwarming that people are giving regardless of the volume and amount here, that one billion ringgit. So we should, if we ever have the capacity to give, think about these two dimensions, about the things that we personally care about and the problems that we actually need to solve. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be the billion US dollar kind of the gift, right? But I think what is also really cute was when he left her the whole portfolio of Berkshire Hathaway, which apparently she didn't know much about, he left with her with instructions to do whatever you think is right with it. And she wanted to give that tuition. She wanted to give tuition-free education. And she realized that some was enough to do so in perpetuity, which is an amazing fact. Yeah. Now, what about Asian universities? Because I did a little bit of digging, right, to think about what about, do we have a culture of an endowment here? And the answer is not really. So I only could get some data coming out of Chinese universities. They have seen a robust growth in donations. And that's data back in 2021. About only 1.2 billion uh, uh, US dollars, 95% was cash and the balance was in equities. I hope they got cash because Chinese stock market hasn't done so well. <laughs> but that's just me being a realist. Uh, donations only account for less than 5% of university revenue. And for 70%, it was less than 1%. Unlike mm. in Europe, it is 5%. And in US, guess how much endowments are? 16% of revenue. I'm not surprised. I think the biggest mm. issue in Asia is we don't build our alumni networks strong enough, right? I can even recall in when I was studying in the UK, my boarding school, they do alumni conversations for A-level students, okay? So <laughs> it goes to show how advanced it is in the in the West, right? When you think about the alumni network. And I wonder how much of that is uh, linked to just the independence of universities as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, whether, you know, links to government make it less easy for donations to come in because they think, hey, it's backed by the the government. What, what? Why do I need to, right? Right. And maybe there should be clarity in terms of what the endowment is used for because mm. transparency is critical. And, you know, like the Harvards of the world where the endowment funds are in the billions, it's managed like an asset mm. management company, very professional, right? The, so that even when you give, you know where the money is going to and how is it being used. So, Shawning, you know, because even though you're not a billionaire, but you care for me, you actually know I'm a problem. So, think about me, right, in your future giving thanks I think I'm going to live longer than you because I'm healthier than you and there are better more worthy causes out there okay moving on quickly to insider trading I know they're not related but this is also another story which caught one of our producers I Mo she highlighted it so it's about this Texas man he made 1.76 million US dollars from insider trading eavesdropping on his wife's works call. I think she works for British Petroleum. Am I correct? Something like that. The point is, what is this definition of insider trading? If you're just listening to your wife going, yeah, 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 we're going to take over company A. You're going to pay three million for it. Blah, blah, blah. Is that insider trading? I I first heard this story listening to the Morning Brew podcast. So the presenters there were covering this. And what was so striking was they talked a little bit about the evolution of insider trading and how it began with perhaps pillow talk conversations, right? Yes. It's usually uh, seen as, I don't know, it, it goes 
you, they have that dimension to it. But ever since the pandemic, it's definitely changed in that you don't need to have pillow talk conversations to find out details of things. You could just overhear conversations uh, that your partner or really anybody that you're working with is having in the pantry or the kitchen, for example. And if you have a keen enough ear and you get to glean some information, you may take it and use it for trading. Does that count as insider trading? Correct. I think that's where it's interesting because if you have these conversations in the pantry, you are surrounded by colleagues who are bound by the same rules. Now, when with the pandemic, you're working from home and you're involving families, they don't necessarily follow the same rules. Rules, And I, I got the shivers when I read this, actually, because like I'm thinking about my mom. She has no boundaries whatsoever. <laughs> right? So you know, even if you close the door, the door just gets opened, right? And she delivers my She doesn't Milo. believe in knocking, right? There's no concept of that. So really, where are the boundaries drawn here, especially when you're working from home? What struck me also, really, was just how um, diligent the uh, SEC is in, I suppose, going after this because mm. I wouldn't know how to determine whether this trade comes from uh, insider okay. trading or not. So there are certain criteria that must be ticked. One is this information is confidential, not publicly known. Yep. Second, you act on it and benefit from it. So you make a, a profit. Okay, does it actually know? You can even make a loss. The main thing is you acted on this information to do something you otherwise wouldn't have done. That's a very basic ex, uh, definition of insider trading. I'm sure lawyers will crucify me for that. But that's that sums it up. So I think he did those two things. He had information which nobody else had, right? This husband, he made some money from it, which he wasn't supposed to. So even though next time you're on a golf course, and let me tell you, lots of conversations are very interesting on a golf course or in the locker room and you hear something which you shouldn't otherwise hear, but you know you can make money from it, it's illegal, folks. It's called insider trading. So you're not supposed to do that. Uh, very quickly, let's squeeze in one more story coming from South Korea, which I found interesting. It is the world's, it has the world's lowest fertility rate. Can you beat that? I was like in shock, okay? And this is a record low. Uh, it's 072 and for a country's population to hold steady, that number should be 2.1. You are talking, of course, of South Korea. Yeah, South because Korea. news came out over the week that uh, South Korea has the lowest birth rate in the world. And the BBC has a very interesting um, long-form article uh, looking into why South Korean women are actually opting not to have children anymore. And it's a fascinating read because they spoke to a wide range of different women uh, to talk to them about why they've uh, ended up with uh, a, a path that uh, doesn't permit or doesn't they don't opt for children. Mm. And I think the factors really vary. But it's this is sort of one of those uh, more serious scenarios, mm. so much so that even the government has called it a national emergency yes. that our birth rate is so low. And I think it's global trends or trends that are unique to South Korea, I Global guess. trends, actually. Mm. You'd be surprised that birth rates have been dropping around, actually even here in Asia. But the consequence of this is that the government has actually spent 200 over billion, uh, 286 billion over the last 20 years US dollars to come overcome this problem. But I don't think money is so much. A lot of it is cultural. It is cultural in yeah. the sense that it, it's how society views women, right? And also some of it is how corporates treat women. Mm. So they are the most highly educated among OECD countries. But yet, in Korea, women have the worst gender pay gap and a higher than average proportion of women out of work compared to men. I think the levels of, um, I guess, discrimination or issues that women deal in Korea, they've become quite legion when you think mm. about it. And don't forget in the previous elections, uh, the, you had the... 
the, I guess, political leaders themselves say, saying things that uh, really seem quite misogynistic. And, and in terms 2024, of... 2024, right? Right. And I, that doesn't really send the right... It doesn't send a good signal to women at all that they're mm. being valued in society for uh, their talents beyond just childbearing. And the repercussions of this will actually be an uh, accelerated ageing society, actually, if you think about it. And even there's even narrative now about a super ageing society. Yes. And the incremental cost of that will be incredibly high. So your misogynism will actually bear a significant cost to the economy. I think it's compounded also by the fact that uh, countries like South Korea and Japan, they're not pro-immigration as well. So yes. you can't even uh, have that immigration inflow of people to help boost your economy. Uh, if you're really reliant on yep. just your local population, then yeah, something's got to give. Okay, so some data. Singapore is 1.0, China is 1.2. Guess where Malaysia stands? 1.8. We are below that also. So not enough women actually having children. And we should ask ourselves, what structures do we have in place? What policies do we have in place to encourage women to what if they want children to have those children? Are we creating the right infrastructure for that? And if we don't, what are the consequences of it? Now let's turn our attention to what's happening in Malaysia. And interestingly, on the medical profession, because our new, well, relatively new health minister, Dr. Zul, uh, has basically come out to say that loyalty and patriotism are the biggest employee retention factors for doctors in the public sector. As we know, we Malaysians suffer from a brain drain, be it private or public, but I think even more so in the public sector, especially when it comes to doctors and nurses. I really have issues about sometimes using loyalty and patriotism as the reason to retain a staff, you know. that That's not an issue with government. It's also an issue with GLCs. It's an issue with some companies as well who say, oh, we do, we will sacrifice pay in, you know, because we the, the staff is loyal and such, right? And so for me, loyalty shouldn't be the basis to why you retain. It should be the value of how you conduct yourself in business and I think there has to be the distinction here in my view I think what the article or what his comments show to me is that the reason why we still have good doctors is because of that loyalty mm. and that is a mercy for the Malaysian healthcare system mercy. you know because if We're we just... didn't have that if we didn't have those doctors who are serving out of a sense of we want to serve the country and we know we're loyal we're patriotic then we wouldn't have it, good doctors at in the system at what point then do we take them for granted exactly That's my biggest exactly so issue. we cannot take that loyalty for yeah, granted more needs to be done to ensure that uh, this loyalty is actually paid back and also uh, incentivizing others uh, to stay in because loyalty can only get you so far. Loyalty can't pay the bills. Loyalty can't keep your mental health in it's check. It's how you conduct yourself, are... in my view, as right. opposed to saying, oh, you get paid more because of you being loyal right. and such. That, that doesn't sit well with me at all. Yeah, but there are a few practical issues here, right, that we have to contend with. Yes, we have been blessed. I use the word blessed, okay? That people still want to serve the country. And they mm. serve it because they are. They feel that I want to give back. I'm a Malaysian. This is my calling. Uh, you know, but that doesn't... It, that should not be stopping the government from constantly reviewing its pay mechanism and schemes in terms of how to retain these loyal people who have decided to give up otherwise maybe very lucrative careers in the private sector. 
Case in point is even our politicians. You contrast it with Singapore. Mm-hmm. We pay Singapore pays the politicians much more, right? To yeah. market, and so the the classic MP that joins us says, "Oh, I'll do it for the sake of the country." And you know, I don't know whether that actually holds them true, right? Because then you compromise on performance, you compromise on you know KPIs. Because when you say you pay them for the service, you're obligated to deliver for the service that they were paid for, right? And so when you apply these discounts of loyalty to it, right? Are you applying other discounts on other things as well, like your service delivery? Yeah, but the problem about that Malaysia faces is, on paper, I think everybody knows that we need to pay our doctors more. Mm. That's the reality. Uh, the MMA, the Medical Association, has already said, you know, even things like how much you pay your your doctors on the weekend, I was shocked. It is as It hasn't been reviewed since 2012. And currently, it is now nine ringgit an hour. I think there are some fast food joints that probably pay staff more than that on an hourly basis. So to me, it's like, oh, this is this doesn't work, right? There's a huge disparity. But we know we are fiscally constrained. We have one point one seven trillion. This was announced in Parliament yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Fiscally, we have very little headroom. So where can we move? What needs to change, right, in order for the government to be able to pay our doctors more? And I, I, not, I don't envy Dr. Zul, neither do I envy Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim, our finance minister, because we're also looking at how to scrimp and save. Mm. Yeah, but I think this is, this is a fair point, but I've seen it actually being used in the private sector as well, where young mm. undergraduates are paid Peanuts. peanuts, yeah, on the basis that it's part of their apprenticeship and so then they bond them and that they will get paid later in the yeah. future. Or they'll so say that's things also, like, uh, oh, you should be lucky to work here because you learn something. Yes. So I find that also quite disconcerting in this day and age, right? And we, you know, even chambering bar students, right? Mm. They were paid 300, 400 ringgit I, when my sister was chambering at the time. Mm. What was shocking to me is that when I joined the workforce as a management trainee, all the way back in 1998, Ooh. many people still earn that same salary as a graduate in 2024. Exactly. No concept of inflation whatsoever. I know that Malaysia, we have issues in terms of underemployment, but for those companies who can afford to treat your staff a little bit better, loyalty is not going to keep them warm at night or feed their bellies because it's just not going to be good enough. Right, so something has to change. That mindset has to change. Now, very quickly, we have another fun story because it's Friday. You know, there was a recent uh, National Heritage Food listed in our Government Gazette. I actually clicked on the Government Gazette. I couldn't believe that there were all these names of food there. And there's a bit of hoo-ha because bakute is included in it. But there are like nine other items, kolok mi, burasa, nasi embeng, dodol, kueh genggang or kueh lapis, kueh karas, jerot tuhau and ai katira. And some of them I was like, I don't think I've tried all of them. <laughs> I have I, no clue as well for half of the dishes actually. I didn't even and know. And I'm sorry, I missed that one. I didn't know. We even, excuse me. I didn't even know we had such a list that under the National Heritage Act of 2005, the government comes up with this official list of what dishes are considered a national heritage. So that was uh, really interesting uh, for me. I'm wondering if, I'd like to see the full list, I guess, if this is the additions for 2024, what else has made it to this list of national heritage? Which, yeah, why do we need a list? 
I, I mean, what goes in? I want to know. Is it like the Michelin? You know, yeah. yeah what is the significance go, yeah, of being uh, called the National Heritage? And then, yeah, like, right? do people go around? Is there a big debate in the government department? Hey, this one, this one, no, yes, this, this dish. We always have issues about the definition of heritage because we have an issue about some people having a static view of what heritage is. Like, if you are forty-five, you think the heritage is something in when you were a young kid. But we must know that actually, culture and traditions are evolving and dynamic. It's just that some people are really much stuck in the past and that is why there are some issues about when we classify heritage dishes because some people have very different understandings of what heritage is maybe one day bubble tea might be in there (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's all from the morning run on WTF coming up next is the 10am news bulletin and then it's over to Enterprise keep it here BFM 89.9 you have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9 the business station for more stories of the same kind download the BFM app